This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care here at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. I'm speaking to you today from Boston, and with me today in London is Dr. Joe Brierley, Consultant Intensivist at the Great Ormond Street, London, and Senior Lecturer at University College, London. Dr. Brierley is an expert in hemodynamic monitoring of the pediatric patient and has written extensively in this area. We're fortunate to have him with us in London today. Uh, welcome, Joe. Uh, good afternoon, Jeff. Joe, I wonder if we could begin the conversation uh, by talking about, you know, clearly what you would agree is the most important element in hemodynamic monitoring, which is the examination of the patient uh, in shock. Um, how do you think about this? How do you instruct students in that? And in your own practice, um, how often are you examining the patient in shock? And do you use a framework uh, to think about the examination um, of the patient to understand their trajectory? Thanks, Jeff. Absolutely, I would agree the most important part of any assessment of shock, whether it's uh, in, in a children's ICU or, or anywhere else, is actually examining the patient. And so we would be very strong in saying to the fellows, go to the bedside, look at the child and think through the circulatory parameters. There are very good resource courses out there that teach us the ABC approach. And the first part of circulation approach is, is very much from those courses. What's the heart rate? Is the child well perfused? But also, is the child conscious? What are the end organ effects of any problems with the circulation or shock on other parts of the child's body? So you're absolutely right. That global assessment of circulation, being by the bedside and thinking about the child, but also looking at the trajectory of any, any changes in circulation are very much what we teach. Now, I'm wondering um, if Great Ormond Street, London, um, do you have an early warning or a rapid response system? And uh, do you try to put the uh, evolution of the exam into a framework, as it were? We do. We have, have a Q score, which we've brought in around the trust, which is a similar early warning score to the one you guys have at Boston. And that helps the nursing staff around the wards have an idea of when a child may be deteriorating. It's a routine system working throughout the hospital. And with that, we've actually decreased the amount of clinical emergencies within the hospital. And assessment of circulation is a fundamental part of that tool. Well, it's interesting, um, and we're going to show Dr. Brierley's uh, framework now on the screen. And now um, I'd also like to share with you uh, um, our, uh, what we call choose system. And so we're going to also share this with the audience now. 
As you see here on our reference tool, this is the Children's Hospital Early Warning Score, or CHOOSE. The credit for this goes to my colleague, Dr. Monica Kleiman, and we are showing this with her permission. She developed this uh, for our 400-bed hospital. For all patients outside of the ICU, the nurse uh, will score each patient who's on the floor or ward unit throughout our hospital. And as you see here on the reference tool, there are five variables, uh, behavioral, neurologic, cardiovascular, respiratory, staff concern, and family concern. And then each one of these variables um, gets a score. Uh, for the physiologic variables, the first three you see, they're scored uh, zero to three. And then for the staff and family concerns, you see um, it's a score of whether one is concerned or not. Our early warning system, it's interesting that when we developed it um, as a framework for the, the uh, clinicians on the floor, we didn't initially have in also um, uh, the family concern. And by putting that into our framework and then having it lead to a score, we've noticed that it kind of overcomes the cognitive bias that sometimes you develop about a patient. Uh, the patient um, doesn't look any different than when the patient was admitted. I think we're fine to keep the patient here. And that scoring framework, I think, uh, gives some objective data to the clinicians to know when it's time to uh, move the patient. Then turning to the assessment algorithm, you see here green, yellow, and red. And so depending on your score, there's uh, increased frequency of assessment or vigilance. And so if the patient scores a three or four, as you can see here, then there's uh, increased frequency of assessment, but there's also notification of the charge nurse on that particular unit, as well as uh, the resident or the uh, physician uh, covering that uh, particular service. Um, and then of course, as you see here, if the score is a five or greater, they're red, uh, there is clinical evaluation at the bedside. That is, the team is summoned to the bedside it's a multidisciplinary team of both the uh, physician and nursing team and the senior physician um, or attending physician as it's known in the United States is uh, notified whether they're present or not by phone um, and the interventions that uh, follow from there. And then finally, if there's a concern for a rapid response, then that's our, our number to notify the team and the team from the intensive care unit is immediately assembled in response to the bedside. And now we'd like to turn to the audience to ask about your practice. Does your PICU use an early warning or rapid response scoring system? If so, does your framework contain a variable about family and or staff concern in addition to the physiologic parameters just noted? In writing your response, could you please first provide the city and country where your program is located? We're back now. Uh, Dr. Brierley, I wonder if we could move on now to uh, monitoring itself. Um, and, you know, the first part of monitoring, uh, aside of the physical exam, of course, is to consider whether you're going to use biomarkers and then moving on to uh, non-invasive modalities or invasive modalities. Before we hear from Dr. Brierley, I'd like to turn to our colleagues around the world and ask about your practice. How do you approach the initial hemodynamic monitoring of a patient in shock? Specifically, do you measure biomarkers? If so, which ones do you measure? And we'd also like to ask about whether you use non-invasive or invasive hemodynamic monitoring. If so, what do you use for a hemodynamic monitor of a patient in shock? In writing your response, could you please first provide the city and country where your program is located? We're back now with Dr. Brierley. How do you think about the decision to uh, 
institute and progress with hemodynamic monitoring. Do you start off with biomarkers and then if the patient's trajectory is progressing too rapidly, you move on to uh, non-invasive monitoring or do you employ non-invasive monitoring along with biomarkers and, and what's the evidence to guide us? I think um, if you look at children as they're deteriorating, Jeff, trying to name a time point for every child when you can say, yes, this is when we switch to thinking about hemodynamics and invasively monitoring things is really tough because some children will get sick very quickly, others will get sick more slowly. So the use of biomarkers in the early recognition of shock, I think, is very important. The hemodynamic parameter guidance suggested quite early on that we look at things like central venous oxygen saturation. But of course, that needs people to stick invasive necklines in. So, so very much that first hour of recognizing shock in the child is linked to the clinical exam at the bedside we've already talked about. But we're starting to use lactate more early. We're starting to use blood gases by the bedside, trying to work out when we should actually up gear and change into looking at hemodynamic monitoring in a more invasive way. So the way to look at hemodynamics is that initial clinical assessment of the child, but then really to start thinking about, well, this is the time to switch my thinking, to think about preload, contractility, afterload, and go into that more ICU method of assessing circulation. And could I ask, uh, at Great Ormond Street, London, do you have um, a recommended panel of biomarkers that you follow for the patient evolving in shock? Uh, uh, for instance, do you look at uh, CRP in addition to uh, lactate? Uh, do you specify how often uh, central venous saturation should be uh, measured, or is it left uh, to the judgment of the clinician um, in each individual case, as you noted? Jeff, we've not been as rigorous in terms of determining exactly the hour-by-hour -hour status a clinician ought to monitor biomarkers. So we often use lactate clearance. In fact, you and I have both been through the evolution of looking at biomarkers in, in septic shock in children. Um, central venous saturation from the Rivers data and the Dolavira paper in paediatrics some time ago, which we can put up now for people, will have told us that looking at central venous oxygen saturation and aiming for a target above 70% is a good thing to do for children in shock. But several papers since that time have shown that looking at lactate clearance is just as good. And I have to say, we tend to look at that now a lot more than measuring central venous oxygen saturation. Along with our global parameters of shock, we don't forget the initial assessment and we will still have our fellows and clinicians go back and reassess core peripheral temperature gap, heart rate, blood pressure, all these other parameters, but also now start to think about blood flow, cardiac index, systemic vascular resistance index, when we particularly have a patient where the lactate isn't coming down or we think we have persistent shock. Um, the catechlamin resistant type parameters and international guidelines are often where we are in the ICU. So we've got people who've been trying to reverse shock for a time in the emergency department or on the children's ward using fluid volume resuscitation, using simple inotropes such as dopamine or peripheral adrenaline or epinephrine, as you guys would say. But actually, by the time you get into the ICU, we're starting to get more and more concerned. We know that every hour a child stays in shock, the mortality doubles. That's old data now from Joe Carcillo's group. But that really worries us. If a child gets onto the ICU and still has untreated shock, we're extremely worried and we're starting to become very aggressive in our therapies. 
Well, I wonder if I could pursue um, some of that uh, now. Um, you know, Joe, as you well know, uh, 20, 30 years ago, the concept of uh, pathologic supply dependency and targeting a supranormal oxygen delivery uh, was felt to be beneficial in improving patient outcomes for patients in shock. And uh, we know now from uh, several large, well-designed, randomized, controlled trials in the adult population uh, that that does not appear to be the case, that uh, supranormal oxygen delivery in the adult patient, in fact, led to a worse outcome. And so, of course, the audience is undoubtedly wondering, um, it's intuitively logical that we would follow uh, biomarkers of uh, anaerobic metabolism and poor tissue oxygenation, but what do we do then? Um, is there evidence in the pediatric literature that says that uh, you, know, you should target uh, raising the uh, mixed central venous saturation uh, to a certain amount or that you should target trying to uh, improve lactate clearance in a certain number of hours? Or is it, again, individualized treatment? I, I think, Jeff, kind of the difference there is between late resuscitation and optimizing things on the ICU and early goal-directed resuscitation against certain biomarkers. And certainly, the information we have, it's not very good information. The information we have does suggest early resuscitation to reverse shock reduces mortality, but there is very little to suggest that there's a late effect of reducing shock. And it's almost as if you're, you're, we always say to fellows, you're trying to pull an elephant back up a hill. Once the child's got into the ICU and hasn't responded to early treatment, you're really struggling. People have then tried very aggressive therapies, renal replacement treatment to try and remove biomarkers, trying to do other clever stuff, removing cytokines. But as far as I understand, very little has shown a difference for children who remain very, very sick and shocked once that early period has passed. So, you know, although I can tell you what we do, we certainly try and chase lactate, try and resuscitate. We are struggling to do anything different from that stage inside the ICU once a child's here. Having said that, the mortality for children inside the ICU from septic shock in our institution after a few hours is very, very small. David Inwald at St Mary's in the UK went back and looked at our national data set looking at the mortality from septic shock, which was an alarmingly high 17% from referral to an ICU, but most of the deaths occurred outside the ICU. So the deaths we saw in the UK were occurring in the local hospitals, some during retrieval, and some during the first few hours of the ICU admission. Once a child's inside ICU and we're doing our stuff and reversing shock, from that information, it would appear the mortality is quite low. But the area we need to focus on is the children who aren't getting that early resuscitation, we feel. What that resuscitation ought to actually consist of, and I'm sure we'll come and talk about Kath Maitland's paper, which has been very, very um, controversial, in terms of practice in different uh, types of healthcare um, economies, I would say, um, is a challenge because we're looking at now perhaps having the same sort of study from the Mary's group in the UK that are looking at getting funding for this, looking at the same sort of paradigm. Should one use fluid resuscitation or not in critically ill children? So the hemodynamic parameter guidelines from the ACCN do suggest as soon as you get a second peripheral IV in a child with shock, we should be commencing an inotrope, either dopamine or low-dose epinephrine or adrenaline, um, to try and improve myocardial performance, which we know can be affected in severe sepsis and septic shock. 
And so could we follow up on this for a minute? Um, as you know, uh, some guidelines, um, as you were alluding to, uh, claim that after 60 cc's per kilo of fluid resuscitation, uh, the pediatric practitioner should think about introducing a vasoactive agent. As you noted, other guidelines are calling for a somewhat earlier institution. Um, in your practice at Great Ormond Street, London, um, when are you thinking about instituting vasoactive agents? Um, are you going to try to get in uh, 40 or 60 cc's per kilo, or perhaps even more, before it is instituting vasoactive agents? And could you also talk about the emerging controversy uh, uh, or concern in the adult literature about the nature of the fluid? You know, there's been the crystalloid and colloid concerns, but now there's a concern that perhaps we're resuscitating with too much normal saline, and in particular, uh, the chloride and hyperchloremia and the effects of that. Um, has any of that changed your practice? Before we hear from Dr. Briley, we'd like to turn to our colleagues around the world and hear about your practice. What is your practice regarding initiation of vasoactive agents? Specifically, after how much fluid resuscitation do you typically begin initiating vasoactive agents? In writing your response, could you please first provide the city and country where your program is located? We're back now with Dr. Brierley. Um, what's interesting, Jeff, at, at present, we would advocate, certainly in our own practices, to, to go with the ACCM guidance. And that we think early inotropy for these children is a good thing. Um, so the second IV line in early dopamine or, or low-dose epinephrine adrenaline is very much what we try and do, even when your first 20 mils per kilo is going through. Now, achieving that isn't always easy in a children's hospital, depending on vascular access and wards. And the other thing for our own local practice, this hospital doesn't have an emergency department. So all our children are actually brought in that have a community acquired sepsis from other hospitals where they've had the primary stabilization. Certainly our guidelines would suggest we would like people to commence therapy as I've discussed. Yes, um, uh, my other question, and I did load two on you there. My second question relates to the, the nature of the fluid that you're resuscitating with. And as we discussed, and as you well know, uh, there's been a long concern about the crystalloid colloid controversy, and that seems to have settled out after the initial Cochrane review suggested that there was a worse outcome in adults who received colloid over crystalloid. I believe in the pediatric field that's uh, less of a controversy, but I'd be interested to hear your view of the evidence. But then also the recent um, uh, studies in the adult literature suggesting that excessive use of chloride in resuscitation and the uh, potentially deleterious effects of hyperchloremia um, has led to an examination of, of whether uh, we should be using uh, less aggressive use of, of normal saline. And, and your comments on that, is there evidence in the pediatric literature to guide us in this regard? And if not, what is your practice at Great Ormond Street, London? Before we hear from Dr. Briley, we're curious to find out about our colleagues' thoughts on fluid resuscitation for the patient in shock. Specifically, we are interested to hear what type of fluid you use for volume resuscitation for the patient in shock, considering the varying opinions regarding the use of crystalloid, colloid, and normal saline. In writing your response, could you please first provide the city and country where your program is located? We're back now with Dr. Brierley. So, so the evidence is pretty sparse. Um, there was some data, I think Kath Maitland again, from way before the FEAST study, looking at uh, resuscitation in different diseases. So she had some information on using albumin, 
Um, there was information from dengue fever in using albumin that being slightly superior to crystalloid. Um, we actually were quite influenced by uh, adult practice, the 5,000 patient safe study, which seemed to um, respond quite nicely to those concerns about colloid over crystalloid. So our practice has been slightly influenced by that. I think there's a practical component. So in the UK, albumin is a blood product and therefore slightly harder to have by the bedside very quickly. And if at the same time we're saying, well, we want to get fluid resuscitated into a very sick child with sepsis very quickly, and then we suggest using a fluid that isn't readily available, you can see the problem. So that's led us to suggest normal saline as the initial resuscitation fluid with follow-up boluses by uh, human albumin solution, 4.5%, as our preference. And the evidence base for any of this in children is quite small. I have to say the hypochloremic concerns in my own personal experience are mostly influenced by people chasing um, a base excess on a blood gas. And I, I, whilst reading that literature with interest, I don't think we see the same sort of complications from specific fluid use. Now, I'm saying that without any um, randomized controlled trial or even review of the literature I'm aware of to suggest there's a problem with saline, but, but again, I can't say that there isn't a problem. So I just don't think we know. We know that in the fee study, there are a problem with fluids full stop over not receiving fluids, but the type of fluid one uses in paediatric practice, there really is very little good quality A-grade evidence to guide us. And uh, finally, um, in terms of resuscitation steps, I'm sure our audience is uh, eager to hear your interpretation of the transfusion literature. When are you thinking about packed red blood cell transfusions in the patient with evolving shock? Um, and what threshold do you use in your practice at Great Ormond Street, London, to consider uh, administering packed red blood cells in that context? Before we hear from Dr. Briarley, we are curious to find out about our colleagues' practices around the world. Do you have a specific threshold that you use to guide your administration of packed red blood cells for the patient with evolving shock? If not, under what circumstances do you advise the administration of packed red blood cells to such a patient? In writing your response, could you please first provide the city and country where your program is located? We're back now with Dr. Briarley. Again, the literature for shock resuscitation is not so strong. We were part of the TRIPICU study, which obviously was a, a study looking at um, transfusion thresholds in stable children on the ICU, or as we might term them, top-up transfusions. And that's now moving on to an age of blood second um, study looking at how, how to optimize treatment with pap red cells when you use them for um, this kind of elective keep the numbers up transfusion. In shock, it's tougher. So we have the Rivers paper in adult literature which used transfusion as part of the resuscitation of shock to get the SCV2 up to a certain number. And it's certainly one of the interventions that the ACCM guidelines have as part of how you bring up the SCV02 in children. I have to say, we don't have great data that says if you have a child with septic shock, your hemoglobin should be kept at 10, at 12, at 14, at 8. There's just not that information out there. So I think we, I don't know what you do, Jeff, but we currently really look at it in terms of a case-by-case -case basis. Perhaps the way to think about it is that most of the children who are slightly anemic during shock resuscitation are anemic because you've given them lots of volume, crystalloid, colloid, 
And actually, we also know the late effects of all that fluid is not so good in a sick child on the ICU. So in terms of fluid shifts and how we manage children, we resuscitate aggressively the shocked child as they're becoming unwell. But actually, we're pretty aggressive in removing fluid at a later stage as well. So we would use diuretics, uh, ferrucemide, other medicines, and then possibly even hemofiltration to remove fluid from children on the ICU because we know that fluid overload from several studies is a very bad prognostic marker for the child on the ICU. So maybe the answer to the hemoglobin question there is actually maybe to be slightly cautious in giving extra red blood cells, but really rely on the fact you're going to remove water in a few days' time to try and get the hemoglobin back up. Very good. I wonder now, Dr. Briarley, if we could move on to um, hemodynamic monitoring. And, you know, of course, this is, a, this is a, an expansive subject, and uh, we certainly don't expect you to um, uh, perform a complete review of all the modalities that are out there. But to share with us how you think about the problem, um, the patient with distributive shock, perhaps from infection, uh, is now evolving. Uh, you know, as you've emphasized, it's uh, really the serial physical exam that's the most important thing. You have biomarkers that you're following, and it sounds like at Great Ormond Street in your practice, uh, examining lactate clearance over time, the trend in lactate um, is your principal biomarker. Uh, but now you're concerned and you're starting to think about further monitoring. So I'm wondering if you could describe for us, are you thinking preferentially that you're going to prefer to do invasive monitoring, that you're hoping to place um, uh, an internal jugular catheter uh, line so that you can simultaneously measure mixed venous saturation at the superior vena cava right atrial junction? Or are you thinking, no, my preference is I want to um, go with one of our non-invasive monitorings. I don't want to be invasive as my first step. I prefer a non-invasive monitor. And if so, uh, which monitor um, would you use? So, so I think it's a good question. In terms of whenever you think about hemodynamic monitoring, the, the, obviously the benefits are you pull in hemodynamic monitor data, you can look at how that changes, the circulation alters and flows, but there is an incremental risk determined by the degree of invasiveness of the monitor you put in. Jeff, it might be useful for me to explain that by going over our history of hemodynamic monitoring at Great Ormond Street during my time here. Um, I think it was 2002 we last put a pulmonary artery catheter into a child and it always used to worry me seeing a little balloon float across the tricuspid valve apparatus and thinking through all the potential complications we, we might have with that. Um, and actually, when you look at hard at the data you get from hemodynamic monitoring versus not doing it, I think possibly the justification of very, very invasive uh, methods is probably not strong enough. And you know, you've seen the Pac-Man study in adult literature, which has shown that using Swan-Gantz pulmonary artery catheters, even in adult intensive care, is questionable to be very fair. We moved on from there to using large-bore interarterial catheters um, and measuring blood flow that way. And certainly, you know, without mentioning any companies, again, the potential complications were made real to me. Uh, we had a child who lost part of a leg on our kayak ICU many years ago. Um, and really, you kind of have to balance using invasive devices with the data that the hemodynamic kind of optimization will bring to you. And certainly in children, it's got easier to measure hemodynamics as technology has advanced. And we went through a process of using um, esophageal Doppler, which to us was fairly straightforward. But, but again, there could be complications um, in, in terms of people putting it in the wrong orifice. You'll be surprised if someone put one in the nose and had a big nosebleed. 
We've lost a tooth doing that. So again, all these devices have a potential for complications. So we've really moved to non-invasive monitoring. And I think the science has moved with us and uh, has helped us. So now we have devices that can accurately measure hemodynamics in a very non-invasive way in children. So the, we have a couple of methods we use on the ICU. And of course, when you say there's a couple of methods, that means that there is no ideal method. Nothing is so far better than anything else that you say, that's the one to use. But we, we use suprasternal Doppler with a particular device, which actually can be applied to children when they're awake. And it does take some skill, and it looks down at the IV, um, the aortic arch directly down into the valve, and using precise, precise equation, it cleverly measures hemodynamics and gives you the parameters you want. Um, or we use another device where you actually connect it to an already existing arterial line. So again, that has no real complications in terms of having extra big blood vessel cannulations being performed. And with that, you get pretty accurate hemodynamic data. All these kind of devices are validated. Um, I have no disclosures about them. Sadly, no one gives me any money for these things. Um, but I think it's, it, you know, I do strongly feel passionate that we should be measuring this in children because I use medicines for xenotropes. They're very, very powerful. And when I use noradrenaline and milrinone, I'm worried about the cardiac index being a certain number. How do I know what I've done? How do I know whether I've made it high enough, low enough? You mentioned using biomarkers. That's great. That's end organ situations. You're looking at the physiology of the body. But actually, we can measure the values we're trying to address themselves. I really push with our fellows to always think about basic physiology. And the two basic equations, Ohm's law, we know that the pressure drop across a system, a circuit, equals the flow times the resistance. And it's just the same in hemodynamics. Blood pressure equals cardiac index times systemic vascular resistance. And whenever you're thinking about a three-sided equation, you can't just measure one of those things and know the other two. So if someone's blood pressure is down, do I know it's because their SVR is down, or is it because their cardiac index is down, or is it both? I would argue that you can be by the bedside and start thinking and touching fingers and toes and trying to estimate that. Shane Tiddy published data from the UK some years ago showing actually clinicians are not so good at doing that. Sounds strange, and certainly when you, you don't have these advancing dynamic monitor kits, you do the best you can. When you put your finger on the toe and say, this patient's warm, we'll use some norepinephrine, mm, you may not be doing the right thing. So I would argue if you have advanced hemodynamic techniques, you ought to use them and actually measure the cardiac index, measure the systemic vascular resistance, and then you can determine how to best treat that. And here's the key bit, measure your response to treatment. We've just published a paper in intensive care medicine, Akash Deep, uh, down at King's, the lead author. And this shows that children's hemodynamic state changes through their ICU course when they come in with shock. So if you have a child with low cardiac index, cold shock, high, high SVR when they come through the door, a day later they may well be in a different situation. It's very strange, but they may well be in high cardiac index shock. So children flip, they can change their hemodynamic status as their disease progresses. And in general terms, if you don't measure what's happening, it's hard to titrate your treatments as we would recommend. 
Well, I wonder if I could uh, push you a little further on this, Joe. Um, you made the excellent point that uh, flow is equal to driving pressure over resistance to flow and that uh, we were all raised uh, perhaps focusing too much on pressure. And uh, of course, that doesn't really uh, let us know whether the organ is being optimally perfused and that the argument for non-invasive monitoring is so that we can better understand flow and cardiac output. Um, I wonder if I could ask you about your paper several years ago. You were first author on a paper with Mark Peters where you examined patients coming in in shock and you were able to use non-invasive monitoring to nicely differentiate those who um, presented and evolved in so-called cold uh, septic shock versus those who presented and evolved in so-called warm septic shock. Could you describe for us uh, the findings of, of that uh, investigation? So what, what we did was really look at children as they came through the door of the ICU at Great Ormond Street and really measured blood flow pretty early, which hadn't been done so quickly in terms of previously needing to put uh, large or invasive devices in, that sort of thing. And we looked at the type of shock they manifested. And so this was slightly after the first day CCM guidelines had been, been uh, written and come out, where people had divided children into warm shock and cold shock. So we sought to do that. And we looked at the etiology of their sepsis. So we looked at children and we looked at whether they were coming from the community or whether they were hospital-acquired sepsis patients. And obviously in that group, there were far more patients that had invasive lines and line infections. This was kind of before the matching Michigan uh, using lots of clever ways to reduce line infections in your patients, which has been a great intervention for, for children in hospital. So we did have children with line infections, and we looked at that, and actually children who had uh, come in from the community, so children who were kind of at home, well yesterday, weren't known to hospitals, seemed to have more um, cold shock. They had more chance of coming in with low cardiac index, cold around the edges, high systemic vascular resistance shock. These children would have meningococcal disease, pneumococcal infections. They were often the community-acquired infections we talk about. The other group, the children who came in from the hospital, a, a large number of them actually had central venous line infections. There were one or two that also had um, pneumonias that they managed to catch in the hospital. Um, but generally, those children had far more um, of the high cardiac index low SVR, so poor vascular resistance, poor vascular tone, and that's the pattern more often seen in adult patients. So that's really what we showed in that paper, that actually you could measure the type of shock a child had early on, and that children, depending on the type of um, infection they had, would manifest a different hemodynamic pattern. Well, you know, the natural question I'm sure many in the audience are wondering is, um, is it time for a randomized controlled trial? Um, your, your previous uh, work has, uh, have been wonderful descriptive studies, uh, and you've made a, a powerful argument as to why non-invasive hemodynamic monitoring is an important adjunct uh, for the child who's involved shock. Um, what would you say now as we, as we look forward? Um, is, is hemodynamic monitoring going to be a key part in decreasing the mortality rate from children presenting in septic shock? Um, does it require uh, an RCT uh, to move us there, if that's the case? Where are we going in the field? So, so, Jeff, I couldn't agree with you more. And we've been part of a group looking at an RCT in two different arenas. Um, Joe Carcillo is part of the group, who you'll know from the, the hemodynamic parameter situation. Um, Tex, Tex Kassoon is also been part of that group. 
and we're looking at a randomized controlled trial of early hemodynamic monitoring and adherence to guidelines in children in low-resource countries and high-resource countries um, with, a, with a, a slight challenge there that actually to move it to the next step has been a real difficult process. So we've had this guidance written, the plan for the study, for three years now. And I suspect if I look internally myself, what stopped us pushing it through is probably, probably Kath Maitland's paper and whether we actually ought to even be thinking about this when there are other things to explore. So I, yeah, I, I kind of sit here frustrated with myself that we haven't driven this through further. I think there are enough people out there that don't think hemodynamic monitoring is the way to go to mean that internationally there is equipoise in this area. Of course, as, as you can detect, I'm, I'm an arguer for this, and I think it gives you something that's very important to help the critically ill child get through septus and septic shock. But others don't think it's as important. And one of the challenges there is when you have a, a relatively low mortality condition, trying to think about invasive devices early on in a child's course of illness is difficult. So I'm not quite sure how things work in Boston in terms of where sick children come to. But in the UK, as I alluded to earlier, they tend to come to local hospitals. So to have someone with the expertise to go and use hemodynamic monitoring early in the course of a critical child presenting is a tough one for us in terms of healthcare economics. And as we've talked about earlier, perhaps late hemodynamic optimization in the ICU, whilst it's something we do, um, might not be where the biggest, um, I think you'd say, bang for your buck is. So I think in terms of Kath Nagelin's data, the UK um, sepsis group working with UK PICS have been supporting David Inward looking at a fluid resuscitation randomised study at the moment. And I guess perhaps for us, when we have someone like Kathy who's done probably a better paper in her population than most of us have done with all our resources in other countries, it's maybe time to look towards getting the basics looked at in more detail. And I think most of us would feel, despite personally being a hemodynamic um, optimising advocate, um, that really we don't even know which fluids we ought to be giving these children, and maybe that's the biggest focus right now. And so, uh, to be clear, as you're referring to uh, Professor Catherine Maitland's paper, which appeared in the uh, 2011 issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, and found that uh, children in East Africa who received um, increased fluid resuscitation had a higher mortality rate than those who had a more conservative regimen. And you're, su I, uh, and you're suggesting that uh, that data um, has uh, put a pause on what we know about what would be the uh, interventions that would follow um, non-invasive monitoring. And so the priority there is to first understand what the intervention would be. I, th I think so. And I, I guess one of my thoughts about that is, obviously, that paper, when you read Kat's excellent work, those children didn't really have access to intravenous um, inotropes early on, which is something that we've advocated for some time. And I guess often children who have protein malnutrition have myocardiums that are set up to not respond to volume overload. I always, as I said before, think back to um, a couple of equations, one's Ohm's law, the other is Starling and his curve. And obviously, if children are towards the top of the Starling curve, if you start giving them fluid, they get into trouble. Um, and I guess part of it is, can we take CATS data to apply to our own population 
Well, we've argued for many years not to extrapolate from adult papers whilst doing it at the same time. Um, I think the time has come for us to get data in our own situations, um, but answering those very, very basic questions once again. Yes, and you're, you're of course uh, referring to um, Professor Maitland's work, and we had the privilege of um, having her on a World Share Practice Forum, and that's still available in the archives. And of course, as you're noting, it's raised uh, many uh, thought-provoking questions for all of us in the field uh, that we need to step back and more carefully examine um, the role of, of fluid resuscitation um, in care of children with shock. Finally, uh, Joe, I wonder if I can turn to you and ask um, any final thoughts um, in the area of hemodynamic monitoring uh, of the child uh, with uh, septic shock and uh, shock in general. I, I think one of the things to keep a lookout for, the hemodynamic parameters group is, is convening again and looking at um, another version of the hemodynamic parameter guidelines. So reviewing the literature as we speak and we'll come up with new recommendations that, I understand, will merge into the surviving sepsis campaign or guidelines from that stage. So I didn't want to make people feel that we shouldn't be still looking at research in other areas, and I certainly will be pursuing things. And I would encourage other people to do the same. But I, I think the, the fundamental questions remain, what basic treatment should we be giving to children as they come through the door? Um, but actually justifying statements such as those we've already made with more data is really needed. And I, um, I have that difference in terms of thinking inside, what, what I can do, what others can do. Yes, we can do in a few more descriptive papers, they're very interesting, but actually do they take us forward? Well, somehow they do. But I am, I'm a firm believer in randomising and getting evidence for treatments. And I think that's somehow getting tougher inside many, many kind of healthcare institutions at the moment. Um, collaboration is improving across North America. Certainly in the UK, we are getting more collaboration together. But that does mean we have to maybe um, subjugate our own personal research areas and go for this is the question that this, you know, we can take forward at the moment. So certainly in the UK with UK PICS, we've been backing David's fluid resuscitation question with all our energy trying to get funding for that. And so perhaps trying to get large-scale randomized controlled trials done to answer those big questions is the key thing to do. But I certainly wouldn't want to discourage anyone from trying to do local work and describing what they're doing. But I, I suspect it's the big answers that are going to take us further forward. Well, Dr. Joe Brierley, uh, consultant intensivist at Great Ormond Street, London, uh, thank you for being with us today and uh, sharing with us uh, your thoughts, your review of the literature, and your personal practice on hemodynamic monitoring in the pediatric patient. Thanks, Jeff. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.